This is Live at Politics and Prose, a program from Slate and Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., featuring some of today's best writers and top thinkers. All right, and so let me get into introducing Samantha Irby. (laughs) So I'm sure most of you know that she is known for creating the blog Bitches Gotta Eat started back in 2009. So we are here to celebrate her updated release of her first collection of essays called Meaty, originally published in 2013. It was also announced in 2016 that FX has bought the rights to her essays and her blog to do a television show. She's written two other books. We're never re- one is called We're Never Meeting in Real Life, which we also have for sale tonight. And uh, New Year, Same Trash, Resolutions I Absolutely Did Not Keep, which is available as an ebook. So everyone, please give a welcoming round of applause to Samantha Irby. not to be ashy. My feet are really moisturized. They're fucking <laughs> slipping around in these shoes. <laughs> I'm about to take off my shoes. I can't even. We're all family. Um, so I haven't decided what to read. Uh, it's my, this is my third stop on the tour, but I mean, I'm kind of a lazy preparer. And the last time we didn't even read, I just answered questions and talked to Abby. So I was thinking to like lighten the mood. I wrote this piece about my dead mom, so I was thinking of writing or reading that for you. I'm just kidding. What if I read that sad shit? (laughs) I'm like sobbing. Ah, let's see. I'm gonna read. This story called The Triplets. It's funny, feel free to laugh. Everybody's always weird about the, there's a suicide joke and no one laughs at that, but please clap, like Jeb, okay. (laughs) When I was 19, I lived in a fucking crack house. Both of my parents had died the year before and I chose to drop out of Northern Illinois University where I had spent the last semester of my studies watching Braveheart every single day and eating ice cream sandwiches in bed and jettisoned a potentially exciting life filled with hanging around frat parties to which I had not been formally invited to instead rent a room in a split level ranch house in a decent neighborhood that had been repurposed from moderately attractive single family home to fully functioning crack house and possible bordello. My sole possessions in order of value and or importance, one, a rusted out 1988 Ford Escort hatchback stick shift that I'd purchased with the $700 that remained of my father's meager life insurance payout, three uncashed social security checks in my name, which is the dead parent's silver lining, an 88 key electric piano and an operational guitar, a box of impressive works of literature, and a bag of pharmaceutical-grade heroin I was was planning to eventually kill myself with. I was living the dream. (laughs) I had a job selling donuts at a bakery in Evanston, Illinois, where I grew up. You haven't lived until you've had to sell apple fritters to your high school classmates home on spring break from Yale. The money you make doing a job like that is fucking laughable, and I supplemented my income house-sitting, walking dogs, and selling prescription drugs and FDA-disapproved diet pills to your mom. (laughs) The crack house was the best a person with no job, no history, no co-signer, no credit score, no references, and no bank account could come up with in a jam. I'd responded to a handwritten ad in the coffee shop I would hang out in when I got sick of eating leftover Danish for dinner, all the gross flavors like apricot and prune that nobody ever buys. When I went to check it out, the mellow atmosphere of the house definitely appealed to my 
bohemian sensibilities. I've always been the type of person who takes her shoes off no matter where I happen to be. <laughs> that wasn't even planned, you guys. I forgot this dumb thing even said that, okay. <laughs> Long skirts, earth shoes, woven bags. This was my uniform in the late 90s. During the tour, which basically consisted of a glance into the communal bathroom and a quick peek at the kitchen, I was impressed by how laid back all the other tenants seemed. The house had clearly once belonged to a nice family who loved it, as evidenced by the sunny yellow curtains and carefully arranged flower pots just outside the front door. It was unclear to me whether those people who'd installed heated bathroom tiles had fallen on hard times and were the ones who'd resorted to selling neatly packaged baggies of Coke and weed out of the back door, or if they jumped ship as the property value plummeted around them and were now wallpapering a new house in a less shitty part of town with 100% fewer strung out kids on PCP peppering their lawn. The landlord and I stepped over an unconscious dude clutching a 40 in the hallway outside of what was to be my bedroom. I'll totally take it, I said as he handed me a padlock and a key. Dude, everyone is so relaxed here. I came home one night a few weeks later to find a base head helping himself to my belongings. After the indignity of having to wrestle a Dave Matthews band CD from the clutches of a grown ass man, I decided to pack my shit and fend for myself like a feral cat out on the streets. For three months, I slept in the backseat of my tiny car and showered with dusty bars of low quality soap in hourly motels. Then I moved in with my friend's stepdad, a recently divorced photographer and graphic designer who took pity on my functional homelessness and offered me both a job and John's childhood bedroom. And that is humbling in the most excruciatingly uncomfortable way, sleeping surrounded by the remnants of someone else's happy childhood. But it was a bed and it was safe. And I know that totally sounds sketchy and dirtbaggity, moving in with some grody old dude who wasn't married to my friend's mom anymore. But his offer <laughs> was the most genuine and selfless kindness I'd received in a really long time. I spent my days ordering catered lunches for photo shoots and peering through a magnifying loop at slides on a light box like I really knew what the fuck I was looking at. <laughs> I answered the phone, cropped and outlined photos, and edited sentences describing stainless steel saute pans. I am surprisingly charming on the telephone, and I can learn just about anything. So after two weeks of watching me eat $15 sandwiches and propositioning the Calumet delivery dudes who came every day to pick up film, Mel decided his money would be, way better, would be way better spent sending my ass to design school in order to hone my burgeoning design skills. The school was called Mac University. It was not a real school. <laughs> Housed in a painfully hip two-story loft building in the middle of that pseudo-industrial district on Halstead Street, just north of Chicago Avenue. This was essentially a trade school for computer geeks, the kind of assholes who referred to their G5s as superior machines, and sat around comparing gigs of RAM in a revenge of the nerd-style dick measuring contest. I was awed by the slick hardwood floors, Snapple vending machines, and track lighting, and terrified by these mysterious hipster nerds who discussed LARPing during the class breaks and the coked out junior PR executives whose bosses were forcing them to learn Photoshop and who only ate a third of the lean cuisines they'd brought for lunch. This is the kind of dumb shit I notice. That a woman the circumference of my forearm took two bites out of a low-fat cheese enchilada and carelessly wasted the remaining 200 calories and three unused Weight Watchers points down the garbage disposal in the communal kitchen. I'm a very sad person. I had stress diarrhea from the beginning. 
with my hoodies and my Birkenstocks and my saddlebags, I just did not fit in with these people and their designer sunglasses and asymmetrical haircuts. And they made sure I knew it. These dicks totally iced me out. No one asked if I wanted anything from the vending machine at the start of class. No one wanted to know what kind of job I did in my real life. I'm not even sure that anyone other, the in other than the instructor, this smarmy dirtbag who spent half the class trying to solicit his most attractive students, knew my name until they saw the car. The most interesting thing about the male midlife crisis is that at its core, it is less about the looming fear of manhood lost than it is about letting your inner 13-year-old run around doing all the shit he couldn't do when he didn't yet have credit cards. Mel and I drank wine every day and ate five-star dinners every night and pretty much wiped our asses with $100 bills in between. Unshackled from his second wife, he was living life the way it deserves to be fucking lived. And before I met that dude, I didn't know shit about sparkling water or jacuzzi bathtubs or pratizi sheets. I didn't know what Ezekiel bread was or that there are more than four types of cheese. I got a nearly perfect score on the ACT but had no idea that people actually ate uncooked vegetables that weren't salad. I sold my escort for 50 bucks and a couple of handfuls of muscle relaxers because, <laughs> because my new dad had a bunch of shiny new toys I could drive, the most impressive of which was, I, it was a gigantic Mercedes-Benz sedan. It was one of those wide-bodied E-series, the 320. Buttery leather interior, black-on-black -black sunroof, power everything, CD changer in the trunk. <laughs> It was 1999, come on. Before cars could call an ambulance for you or suck your dick while waiting in line at the drive-thru. My official job title was something between amateur accountant and struggling, inattentive copy editor. But mostly I just drove that pussy wagon around all day, picking up Prada suits from the dry cleaner and grocery shopping for things like bok choy and millet. It suited me, this life of personal assistant slash adopted daughter. At that point in my life, I felt so uncared for and pretending Mel was my father while ordering his double espressos made me feel like we were a little family. I'd been in the class for two weeks, getting A's on all of my art projects because I'm a genius while alternately trying to blend into the wallpaper and apologizing for my grossly unflattering TJ Maxx pants with my big I'm sorry I'm poor eyes. <laughs> when the ground beneath my social palatability shifted for the better, the Quark workshop I was taking ran from 5 to 9 p.m. And like clockwork, every Tuesday and Thursday at 8.55, I would gather my things, slip unnoticed from my seat at the back of the room, then drive as far south as I could on Lakeshore Drive, looking at the twinkling city lights before turning around and driving all the way back to John's bedroom in the suburbs. But this week, I was doing a cleanse, another crazy rich white person thing. <laughs> and all that lemon water was making me shit green diarrhea like you would not believe. At 9.15, I stepped out of the school building into a group of my classmates who were smoking cigarettes in that glamorous style of the perpetually bored and indifferent. They weren't paying attention to me, but I waved anyway. This little dirtbag wearing a goddamn miniskirt to learn Photoshop asked if I was going to get on the bus, and I pointed to the car. I don't know I said that like that. <laughs> Like, I didn't ride the bus here. Anyway, <laughs> you guys, I took the Amtrak. I shouldn't be talking shit. Okay. Pardon me. Okay. <laughs> and I pointed to the car, that gleaming hulk of German steel, and said, I have my car. And then I left in it. <laughs> Our homework assignment had been to mock up a three-page brochure. 
mine was about the exhilarating world of stainless steel measuring cups. Working in an actual studio afforded me the luxury of high quality print materials, and I reveled in my newfound rock stardom as everyone oohed and odd over my full color glossy photographs. This salty ass Asian broad whom I knew from her incessant fucking bragging was a, was a fancy and super important intern at the Art Institute, stood at the edge of the table, lips pursed, scowling at my work. Whose car were you driving last week? She asked aggressively. <laughs> what a fucking C word. <laughs> 32 year old Sam would have told that smug bitch to get on my dick, but at 19, I was meek and hesitant. <laughs> easily intimidated. So I just sat there in stunned silence, feeling the heat of embarrassment creeping up my neck. What is this, ninth grade gym class? And, had, and I had just ducked out of the way of the volleyball speeding toward my face? Was I really going to sit there cowed by a woman wearing inappropriately youthful footwear? No, I was not. That's my husband's car. <laughs> He's a doctor. <laughs> the lie came out so smoothly and felt so good in my mouth that I repeated it again. I have a husband and he is a doctor. I looked at all the expectant eyes surrounding me. Are they buying this? Like, for real? There's gravy on my shirt. <laughs> What hospital, asked one. What's a specialty, asked another. And with that, I lost my mind. <laughs> with a rapt audience of 24 assholes who up until that moment had acted as if they hated me at a cellular level, I spun a fairy tale of epic proportion featuring my wealthy Aryan German doctor husband. <laughs> because Mercedes come from Germany, right? Who performed hours of complicated brain surgeries during the day, naturally, and who was also a loving and attentive father to our children every single night, well, of course. He just so happened to be a fantastic cook, right? Uh, played tennis all weekend to stay in incredible shape, sure, and even had sex with me when I was on my period. What a saint. <laughs> These soulless dummies who'd been mean to me because my shoes ate that up with a spoon. How many kids do you have? Chirped one girl and drunk on the command I had over these ridiculous jerks, I said six. <laughs> I'm not really sure why I said that. Two sets of triplets, all male conceived in a laboratory I'd seen in an episode of The X-Files. My sexual activity up to that point had been limited to two incredibly awkward and equally embarrassing experiences. First, the loss of my virginity five years prior in the laundry room of my sister's apartment building to this douchebag I went to high school with who had an S-curl and actually wore a <laughs> person you banged? <laughs> Rocket scientist, Barack Obama. Into every life a little S-curl must fall. I'm not even going to tell you the next part about him. You have to read the book. Okay, fine. He also wore an electric blue suit to class every Friday for spirit day. Then... Six months before, I let the overnight muffin and bread dude bang me in the butthole behind a Hobart mixer after work. I didn't have any babies, and one of those types of intercourse can't even get you pregnant. But I soldiered on, pretending to know what IVF treatments really meant, and coming up with names for six German children on the spot. 
Thanks, girl. Oh, my God. You guys, I'm not wearing deodorant anymore. Because I... Sidebar. Because I had like, an infection in my armpits, which really, if you didn't think I was a disgusting person, that seals it. But... I literally cannot stop sweating. I could be in a snowstorm and I'm just slick. I'm slick with grease. Anyway, let's get back into this journey. Okay, so the children. On the spot, I came up with these names. Kermit, Kaiser, Carl, Constantine, Conrad, and Kiefer. Crossbred for the inception of the hybrid Nazi Black Panther army I was attempting to sire with my doctor husband, Kurt. Blame my wide hips and meat beard or maybe my powerful gift for storytelling, but they believed me. They really did believe that I had pushed six strapping young men from my oozing womb hole and was now taking a design class to satisfy my intellectual curiosity. <laughs> and I couldn't get enough. Every time I came to class, someone would ask about my boys and I would make up a story about how the nanny burned down the coach house or that we'd started our own peewee football team. It didn't even matter what I said, my vagina was a celebrity. I created this fully developed fantasy life, augmented by my access to a fleet of fancy divorce mobiles and a subscription to Severa magazine. And once I started, I just could not stop lying. That attention was addictive, and no one was fact-checking my stories, so I just kept the party going. Like most junkies, I didn't even see rock bottom coming. The night before our final exam, I decided to drink a bottle of Cinsano and make truffles because that's what rich ladies with six screaming children do, isn't it? I couldn't find a melon baller to make perfectly round scoops of filling and I messed them all the way up. The misshapen piles of what looked like shiny dog turds as I removed them from the freezer would have been an absolute failure to someone less creative but as I peeled them off the wax paper and attempted to salvage them, a brilliant idea occurred to me. These look like children made them. <laughs> I put them in a white paper box and tied a red ribbon around it. And then I sat down at a drafting table and wrote a thank you note to my classmates with my left hand. <laughs> I am right-handed and not the least bit ambidextrous. I signed it with six little wobbly Ks. I spent the two years following completion of the program designing catalogs and packaging for wholesale food services without incident. Mel went through a rugged outdoorsman phase and traded his flashy bends for a couple of Jeeps and the pitter-patter of tiny imaginary feet came to an end as the last of the people I'd stayed in touch with from that dumb class faded away after two or three emails. On my 21st birthday, a group of my friends went to Lava Lounge, the kind of place that looked like it belonged in a TLC video and was always teeming with the worst possible dudes. Stephanie and I were laughing and shouting into each other's faces the way girls do when we are drunk. I totally want to bang the dude with the Gumby shirt and the fanny pack. <laughs> oh my God, those cross colors jeans are so sexy. When I felt an ominous, an ominous presence looming over us. It was that Asian woman, still wearing shoes better suited for a teenage girl, eyeing me skeptically over her cocktail. She asked where my husband was and how my six children were doing. Then detailed six months worth of my lies, all while Steph watched in disbelief. <laughs> Two sets of triplets? German husband, she shrieked. Doesn't schnitzel give you the runs? You haven't even had that much sex yet. Didn't you just get your driver's license? I almost died. A couple of years ago, I finally got up the courage to tell Mel 
all the lies I'd used his cars and knowledge of fine spirits to perpetuate. He sat across the table from me, brow furrowed, shaking his head disappointedly. Finally, he sighed. Sam, he said gravely, I'm not mad that you lied. I'm not even mad that you kind of made me look like a pedophile. <laughs> I understand why you did it, and I'd understand if you needed to do it again. Just remember next time that I am a motherfucking Jew. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Thank you, guys. Sorry. These were steaming up. I had to take them off. I think my body temperature has come down. Um, question time. Do you guys have questions? You want to talk shit? What do you want to do? I took some of the swear words out of that because I didn't realize. There's always one of these things where there's like a kid walking around. So when you, if you, when you read it for real, you're going to be like, oh, she really changed that up. So I left in the butt sex, but... <laughs> took out a couple of F words. Uh, yeah, do you got, yeah, don't be shot. Come on, don't let me die up here. So Come on. I'm Ask here because questions. of some good friends, and I'm really happy to be here. And yeah. I just started reading your book tonight at four. And I'm just wondering, did you ever forgive that little nine-year-old girl who came home late because she was finally hanging with some friends and saw, you know, her mom had collapsed? Did you ever forgive that little girl? Um, man, that is a deep, <laughs> god damn. People are usually like, did your boyfriends get mad when you wrote about them? Um, so, for those of you who don't know, so I wrote this piece about how uh, it, I felt like it was my fault uh, when my mom died, and I was very hard on myself about it. And, I mean, the real answer is once you get some space from it, Everything was her fault. She shouldn't even have had a kid. She was like 40 and sick when I was born. Now I'm stuck here. A armpit disease. <laughs> so yes, I just feel sorry for myself. And I'm viciously angry at her until we meet again in hell. <laughs> but yeah. It's I mean at the time I you know, like it's hard not to feel like you should have done something, but now I'm gonna be 40, it's her fault. <laughs> Everybody's like, we're not asking you shit. <laughs> yeah, don't be shy. All right, bitches gotta read. Where are you? Yeah. Oh, um, uh, yes, uh, we have a book group on Facebook <laughs> called Bitches Gotta Read and you all should join it. It's hilarious. My coven. That's right. <laughs> um, so my question is, is there anything that you won't write about? Like, where do you draw the line? Because you don't seem to have many. It's true. <laughs> it's true. I won't. I got married a couple years ago. And my wife. Oh. <laughs> the worst decision I ever made. Um, my wife has two kids. I won't write about them. So it's not, like, it's not for me to decide. I don't get to pick, like, the vaccines they get. I don't get to, like, tell them when to go to bed. So it also shouldn't be my decision to like totally exploit them before they can like sign a contract saying they won't sue me. <laughs> so them, and I do have like some soft spots and like deep down things that really bother me. There's a couple things buried down there that I haven't written about yet. I never say never, but I still have like a couple things, but most things, absolutely. I'll write about anything. Hi. Thank you so much for being here. Oh. I have to say that I love your voice so much. Thanks. Your narrative You mean my voice. speaking voice? Because that's pretty terrible. <laughs> but you translate Nothing. it so well to the page. Mm -hmm. And I am a writer. And I know that that is extremely difficult. Oh. And I struggle with it. Where do you get the, where did you get the confidence to have such a strong voice on the page? Man. Man, you guys are really, this side of the room is really, I have no offense. <laughs> Uh, I really have to dig deep. Usually people are like, what do you like to eat? Um, 
<laughs> I know. Yeah, I should have known. You're like, y'all question presidents and shit. So you're like, <laughs> I get up here and everyone's like, so about your process. Um, I, so when I first started writing, like my total goal was to get people to like fall in love with me and not metaphorically. I mean, I was like writing to have sex. And so I was, I started a blog to bang this dude that I met on MySpace. <laughs> oh God, I did sleep with them, so it worked. It worked fine. But then if you read the, if you read the acknowledgments in the back, I then quit. Cause I was like, well, mission accomplished. <laughs> I'm not gonna write this thing anymore. And then my friend Laura was like, no, no, you have to, you have to keep it going. Um, so I think, I didn't, I never had any formal training. Like I dropped out of college and I used to write fiction in high school. And I think just having no idea how to write, but really like having this desire to like make people laugh, make him laugh and then make other people laugh it just sort of came like once I got a response you know it was like really easy to keep going and keep being that open and I have to say I have my internet filtered a little but I have not gotten enough negative response to like stop me from doing that I you know I put like blinders up like my, I don't see anybody's tweets unless I follow them. So I'm sorry if I missed your tweets, but I don't want to open myself up to, to that. So I think when when I like started connecting with people and I found that my stuff was resonating, like that was basically all the reassurance I needed to keep doing it. Also, though, like people always ask me, like, how can you be dishonest? And the thing is, if I didn't do this, okay, so like. Let's say that I created this image of myself and I was like, I'm really thin and beautiful, I have long hair, I don't sweat, you know, I don't shit all the time, like all that. And then like you met me, then I would have to like keep up that ruse and it's just easier to like let it all hang out. And then you meet people and like anybody in this room, I could be like, listen, I'm gonna go to the bathroom and it's gonna be eight minutes. <laughs> And you know what I'm doing. I don't have to pretend I like made a phone call or was like fixing my hair because you already know, right? And like once you experience that freedom, I mean, most people aren't gonna like straight up reject you, but we have this fear that like that they will. So like once I started doing it, and then I'm like, man, I can just like, you know, eat chicken in public and like take an hour in the bathroom or what you know whatever it is then it's like well I'm gonna keep doing that so I can keep being this way so I don't know if that helps but I mean I would say too like when you start like my first little circle of readers was all people I know I mean you really like it's overrated that you have to like give the whole world get reassurance from your friends and then <laughs> <laughs> I can't give serious advice when I'm sweating, but uh, yeah, like I would, I would say like put your voice out there in a safe space, and then when you get good feedback, you'll keep doing it and your work will spread. So yeah, just Thank do you. it. Thank you. You're welcome. Hi. Oh, you guys, you don't have to clap. <laughs> I have a two-part question. Okay, yeah. So the first is, um, so I've like read your blog forever I love it thank um, you that's amazing um are you plan so in that vein I've read both of your books are you plan or all three of them are you planning on another one anytime soon for the voracious readers I just sold oh my, I'm like my ears are sweating I just <laughs> it's gonna be called sweaty um I <laughs> man I just like get naked um I just sold another collection that'll be out in the spring of 2020. So you have to, I have to write it. I have to do some <laughs> shit, but it'll, it'll be out. I'm going to be 40 that year. So it's going to be about, yeah, about like being 40, 
being married. It's. I mean, I've started working on it. It's pretty good. There's a piece. <laughs> there's a piece called Hello 911. I didn't mean to put you on the spot. No, oh no, this is good. This is what I'm here for. Um, called Hello 911. That's like all the 911 calls I wish I could make. Like, <laughs> Hello 911. Someone in the grocery store is standing too close to me. <laughs> So it's already it's sold. I just have to write it. My first deadline is June first, so it's real. So yes, there's at least one more. I don't know how many more though. Like how you know, I'm just gonna get progressively more boring, right? Like, yes. Oh, you guys are sweet, but yeah, but I don't go anywhere, right? Like, what are you gonna read about, like? what I watch on TV. You don't want to read that. If you're writing it, yes, we do. <laughs> okay. At least one. At least one more. What's part two? Oh, part two is totally different. I saw on your Instagram that straight guys are using, like, pictures uh, of mm -hmm. Tinder. And I wanted to, yeah. I want it. Like, I have, she posted, you posted some, you can. Yeah, so my friends, I have a couple single friends, one in Chicago, one in New York, so it's happening all over, nationwide. Men are using pictures of themselves holding my book to like, I don't know, prove that they're like woke or whatever. But the thing is, all I write about is how like all men should die, so. <laughs> It's weird. They're clearly not reading. Look, that dude was like, "I'm out." <laughs> it was like, it was like, now that we've reached the misandry part of the program, good day to you, sir. Anyway, it's weird. It's weird, and they're clearly not reading the book. Although, if they are reading it and are like better for it and like nicer dates and like that's I'm into it yeah. I guess if they're using it the right way but mostly no so my friend Amanda did what do you swipe right when you like somebody so she swiped right on a dude who like had my thing in his profile then she told him that she told me and sent him a screenshot <laughs> of me saying, take my book off your profile. <laughs> and he did, and they went out and they had sex, so. <laughs> I was a happy ending. <laughs> I Literally, figuratively, so. It's weird, though. Men are so shameless, man. Be gay, everybody. <laughs> so weird. I didn't have a question, I just wanted to hear your thoughts. Yeah, no, it's weird. It's weird. It's weird. But like, I, women, if women use it to get laid, that's that's great. Yeah, yeah, of course. Please, any way I can help. Hi. Oh, my nemesis. I'm not your nemesis. It's the way you write it. No, I'm just teasing you. I'm just um, kidding. I just wanted to thank you. Um, re having read like Meaty and We Are Never um, Meeting in Real Life, you've made me laugh, you've made me cry, and you've Aww. made me feel seen, especially. Um, oh my God. <laughs> Don't do this. We're all going to do it. <laughs> no, there's like, a, there's like a paragraph in Total Attack of the Heart that I have bookmarked the one about not being able to deal with your life being humiliating. It made me feel so seen. Like, I too feel like I'm <laughs> letting black women down every where when I'm like, oh my God, I can't do it. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I think that's bullshit. I'm like, what well, we have to do is, I mean, I feel like I was spared a lot of things by like my parents being gone early, right? Like whatever damage I withstood, especially, you know, my mom was born in like 1940, right? So there's definitely an old way of thinking I have sisters who are 20, 17, and 15 years older than I am. And they were all raised like, strong black woman, nothing can touch you. What is therapy? Like, you know, like we don't do that. You know what I mean? And that's mm -hmm. toxic and terrible. I also feel like as much, I feel a little pressure like the more success I have that like, 
I need to do more things for black people. But in that way, I'm just like, if I, it, it's on me to like get people paid. It's on me to like kick open doors for people. And so I, I have been doing things like that. But it re I mean, really you have to take care of yourself. And I think this is not a thing I write a lot, but I think comes through in my work is that I never stopped like looking out for me. Cause like as black women, you're sort of taught to think of the community first, think of the kids first. It's not you, it's us. And like, I can't pull you up if we're like in the same, if we're both drowning and the boat's over there, like, no, nah, I'm gonna get to the boat. And then if I like you, I'll come back and <laughs> grab you out of the water too. But it's a lot, it's a lot of, I mean, I, I don't know if white women feel like that, but it's definitely like from birth, it's sort of instilled in us that it is your job. And it just isn't, you are one person, you need to be healthy. Like, what good are you if you're not healthy? What good are you to anyone else if you're not healthy? If, you know, Harriet Tubman is not like looking down specifically at you, waiting for you to like <laughs> carry the mantle. It's hard, that's like drilled into us, yeah, right? Yeah, the truth is gonna curse me out if I yes. fuck out, fuck up, like. And you just have to not think about that and think like, I can't be good to anyone else if I'm not good to myself. So shake that off. And, and like when people come at you with that, just, you know, smile and nod and then get yours. And then like once you have it, then you can help somebody else out. But like, don't ever feel less than, like what ideal are you living up to? You know what I mean? Like you can only do what you can do. So take care of yourself. Yeah, thank you. Like you made me feel less alone. That's what I'm here for. Oh, you guys are killing me. Hello. Hi. Um, I, yes, I first heard of you through Crystal from The Read. You know, I love Crystal. Yes, love I Crystal. love her. I love The Read. Um, and so I would love a podcast from you. And I was wondering if that's, I was wondering if that's something you've thought of or, heard, or what other mediums are you thinking of exploring? Because we would love more stuff from you. So a podcast, I don't know what I would talk about or do that wouldn't already step on the toes of like people I like who are doing similar things, right? Like Crystal and Kid Fury, I'm like Jenna Wortham and Wesley Morris, if you guys listen to Still Processing, like that's a podcast where I'm like, man. Um, so a million years ago, my friend Lindy West and I talked about doing an advice podcast, like Dear Sugar, but like better, um, fatter at least. Um, and so I don't know, maybe we'll do that eventually. But I mean, so I have to break some news to you. My FX deal is done, so. I know, it's very sad. I mean, Hollywood is a nightmare. We can talk about it when there's not a camera <laughs> rolling about what my experience with trying to sell a show about uh, fat queer people of color is like, but, but I can't tell you where Abby and I are redeveloping it again. So we're gonna write a new pilot and do it in a different way and I got a contract from a new network, but my agent doesn't like it. So we're gonna work all of that out. And hopefully within a couple of years, you'll have a meaty show on TV. And then like, I'm trying to like relax. I mean, I don't really do much now. <laughs> I don't really do a whole lot, but you know, I'm trying to like be in a casket in 10 years, so. I can't do too much, you know, it's stressful doing all this shit. I, like, I don't know, if I could think of like a podcast that would be good, don't rule, don't rule me out. I, maybe I'll come up with, maybe we'll, if you we'll come up with something. We'll definitely listen, so. Yeah, I mean, if you guys give me some ideas, maybe I can make that jump off, but 
right now I'm going to do the TV thing. I'm going to try to get some Hollywood money, try to get some people paid, get some women paid, get some people of color paid. Like that's my immediate thing. Then I got to write this other book and then maybe a podcast. And then maybe I'll disappear into the ether. <laughs> my, time, my time will be done. Hi, Tacola. Samantha. Yes, ma'am. You know I love you. I love you, too. How are you feeling after your hysterectomy? Well, so I didn't have a full hysterectomy. The coda on that piece that I'm going to... I posted this piece today, or this... Roxanne Gay did a series with Medium called Unruly Bodies, and she asked me to write about my body, and I was like, listen, not much uncharted territory. <laughs> There. Also, I need some things. To, I got to write this book. So, uh, but it was right around the time like my uterus was acting like bonkers. Yes, it was the worst. Um, so, what I ended up doing is I had a hysteroscopy. So I went to the doctor. You guys have to read the piece. It's disgusting. But it's great. I went to the doctor. I basically bled all across this country. Like if you have seen me like the last time I went on tour or the Texas Book Festival, any of those times, I was actively hemorrhaging for months and months and months and they couldn't figure it out. And in addition to having diarrhea all the time, I just was a real joy to be around <laughs> always. Um, so I went in and I was like, take it all out. But, you know, they pretend that you're young, 30. I said to the gynecologist, I was like, listen, if I came in here and said I was pregnant, you wouldn't be like, woohoo. So why not just take it out? <laughs> like, <laughs> if you wouldn't encourage me to, <laughs> to breed, then just snatch it out. But he didn't want to. So we did a hysteroscopy, which is where they fill your uterus with water, look at it through a scope, and then dump all the water out. Then a DNC, which is where they scrape it all out. And then he did an ablation, which is where he stuck a little microwave wand and burned it from the inside. Yeah, I was under general anesthesia, which is a weird experience. Um, and then I went back a week later. He showed me a picture of it. It is indeed burned. Like, my, the whole inside of my uterus is, like, black and brown. It looks crazy. <laughs> so hopefully it'll never work again. <laughs> and lining will never build up, like, all no, this stuff. You're definitely going to get preg pregnant from your wife. <laughs> <laughs> You wouldn't believe how many pregnancy tests they had me take. Are you kidding me? And I was like, if you find a baby in there, we're all rich because this <laughs> is the second coming of Jesus Christ. <laughs> if there's a baby in there. So hopefully, cross your fingers that I, you know, I, okay, I'm going to overshare since you asked. Do it. So, like, I had the surgery like March 7th. And I still am technically in recovery. So I had to bring like disposable underwear on this tour. And like you like leak all that burnt stuff. That's what that smell is. <laughs> Me <laughs> leaking old hot dog water <laughs> into a mesh postpartum travel panty. Oh, no one else? No other questions? <laughs> Have on that? Yeah, you can't let me end it. Talk, yes, please, anything. <laughs> um, so I like when you do new release Tuesdays on your Instagram. Yes. Because I get lots of good ideas. Is there anything that you've read recently that you can't stop thinking about that you would advise yeah, we all read? Yeah, so I have told everyone to read Red Clocks by Lainey Zumas. So it's dystopian, which is not really my bag, but it's in a near future where both abortion and IVF treatments and adoption by single women have all been outlawed. And it's a story of five women in Portland in various stages of like wanting babies or not wanting babies. And it's very good. 
I really loved it. I also just read this book called The Oracle Year uh, that I read for Book of the Month, and that was also great. But a man wrote that, so Red Clocks <laughs> by Lainey Zumas. That dude will be fine. He's white. Yeah. Red Clocks. Okay, thank you. By Lainey Zumas. <laughs> Hi. Hi. Um, I grew up in Evanston. Oh, girl! <laughs> I haven't lived there full-time since I was 18. Mm -hmm. I think my childhood was a little different mm -hmm. from yours. But I just wanted to let you know. I don't have a question. I just want to let you know that we claim you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I mean, like, I'm trying to be the mayor Evanston. of Evanston. Go for it. <laughs> It's the, I mean, I don't know if you guys have ever been there. It's where Northwestern is. It's really, it's, I know, it's really just a good place to grow. I have said before that, like, if I hadn't, because I grew up in, like, public school, but we had, we had nothing, right? So if I hadn't gone to that public school, I, who knows where I would have been. It's just, I had lots of people who looked out for me. Lots of teachers who like pushed me to be good and not give in to, you know, my circumstances. So thank you. I went I'm to glad Catholic from school. There. But, oh, but in I'm eighth of nine children. We're Mexican Catholic, <laughs> um, and um, but when I really needed an education, I went to summer school at ETHS. It's the best. Yeah, it's the best. <laughs> they should give me a key to the city or they something. They should. But we're we're working we're working on it. Thank you. Any other brave souls? Burning questions? Problems in your personal life? <laughs> <laughs> Things you need solved? All right. Yeah. Of course. I'll repeat what you say. Okay. So I wanted to thank you for writing that shit. Like, in all seriousness, <coughs> I know where every public restroom, nice public restroom in this city and every other city I live. Mm -hmm. I, I know where every public restroom is. Mm -hmm. um, but my question's not about shit. It's, it's really, <laughs> is, there, is there anything more to say? I mean, I can talk at length. <laughs> you know, I haven't pooped today, and it's oh. distressing to me. <laughs> That's why I was late. Oh, you guys don't know I was late, but I snuck in late because I was trying, but it didn't work out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you date, you have sex, mm -hmm. dirty mattresses, no sheets, no orgasm. Mm -hmm. Why'd you keep doing it? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, a very sad person who watched a lot of Sex in the City and thought that, like, no, I don't know. I think, so at one point it was like, I was, like, actively, like, trying to find, like, you know, like, I never had a real boyfriend in high school and all that. Like, I fucked around with girls, but nothing was solid. So, like, at, at a certain point, I feel like everyone goes to this point where you're like, I just want to know that, like, somebody is going like, to call me back, you know? Like, I'm going to see somebody for more than a day or a night or whatever. So, I think there, at one point, I was chasing that. And then, I mean, <laughs> when I started writing about it, it, that was sort of like, it's like one beast fed the other, right? It was like... If I go on a date, if it sucks, I have some writing material. And <laughs> if I write something funny, I might attract someone who's like, I want to see those diapers you always write about. <laughs> so, but I don't also though, like, and this is real, what else was I gonna do, right? I had a job, the job was fine. I have zero ambition still. I mean, uh, not that you all need the, origin stories of all my projects, but they've all happened because someone was like, do you want to do this? I like made me do it. If like, if my agent wasn't like, let's pitch another book, wouldn't pitch, like I don't care. You know, I'm just trying to live, life is hard. I just want somebody to like, you know, stick their fingers in me. Also, <laughs> I think, 
especially back then it was like i felt like other people were having these experiences i wasn't having and that's very powerful like and this was like pre instagram and shit right so like this is back when just like the gossip ch like somebody called you the day after the date and was like i just had this amazing date and i'm like oh i just ate a packet of cheese you know so <laughs> I think I think just because like it's sort of like what you do right in your twenties you just sort of like chase, chase experiences, uh, chase good sex. I mean I'm glad for all of the terrible sex because that's how I learned what good sex is. Like you don't know it's bad until you're like oh okay, you know like somebody puts it on you and you're like. This is what people write songs about. I wasn't having any songwriting sex. Um, but yeah, I think why it was just like, why not? Like, what else was I doing? I wasn't like curing disease or I don't volunteer, you know? <laughs> I volunteered to have bad dates with terrible men. That was my charity work. And my, it was like Doctors Without Borders. <laughs> Sluts without morals or something. <laughs> this is my, my outreach program during my 20s and 30s. <laughs> Hi, I mean, that, okay, so can we talk about like standards because <laughs> That's one of the reasons I write really honestly is like, cause some people will have you believe that like everybody pulled up in like a Cadillac and held an umbrella over, over them. And I'm just like, man, I'll be the one to say that I banged the Foot Locker dude and he kept his uniform on <laughs> because he didn't care. I used to regularly <laughs> hang out with this dude who would leave his car running with the hazards on in front of fire hydrant in front of my apartment building. So research, I mean, you know, I just, I feel like that's most people's experience. It, like in urban areas, that's like your day, that's your dating life. I just was bold enough to say it. <laughs> questions for you first of all you guys are a very attractive audience <laughs> happy to see so many black and brown faces in here I mean I love white people too no I do for real uh, yeah I do for real but it is like my sometimes my readings it'll be like me and like the so <laughs> in New York I'm not in New York in Boston I <laughs> Boston was great and it's cute and nobody called me the N-word, but I was ready, I was ready. But in Boston, like I made like a blackity black joke, I can't even remember. Um, and like the one sister in the back of the crowd was like, ha ha. And like everyone else was like, you know. So did, I'm, I'm glad to be, what do you guys call this? Is it the chocolate city? Do people really say that? It's not? <laughs> okay, I feel I feel you. So yeah, it is nice. I do I have questions for you. I mean, no. I mean, I'm glad you guys came. Why didn't you have anything better to do on a Tuesday than watch me sweat into my disposable underpants? No, I'm just kidding. Do you guys all live here? Are you all from here? I just expected to see like politicians walking around. <laughs> everywhere like I could walk up to them and be like sir I watched the Zuckerberg thing today boy how do you live in this town everyone here is crooked and terrible god and a million years old all the senators are a million oh god it's all the oldest and the worst I mean anyway who cares who cares about that <laughs> did somebody say vote uh, yeah, no, of course. But still, it's, uh, it's depressing. We did vote, but they stole our shit. Okay, <laughs> I'm not gonna do that.
I'm not gonna get into a Russia thing because honestly, I only went to high school and I don't know how to talk about politics <laughs> other than to get very angry. Um, any last questions? No? All right, everyone. Okay, thanks guys. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for coming. Thank you. Live at Politics and Prose is a co-production of The Bookstore and Slate.com. For information about upcoming Politics and Prose events, visit politics-prose.com. And please let us know what you think of this program. Our email is podcasts at slate.com.